0: Life has given us, I think, a kind of wake-up call and reminded us, this is the chance to cultivate your inner resources. This is the chance to find what really sustains you.
1: You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. Today's episode with author Pico Ayer was recorded on the day of the April supermoon, the same day when Japan's Prime Minister announced COVID lockdown in the country where Pico has lived for 32 years. I will confess, this is a dream guest for the program, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Producers at WERA and Arlington Independent Media are working hard to bring you fresh, relevant programming during this challenging time. Please check out WERA.FM and ArlingtonMedia.org for more information about the great things happening in community radio. My guest today is Pico Ayer, journalist and one of the most widely read travel writers in the world. He has worked for Time Magazine, reporting on everything from Islamic mysticism, Tibet, the back streets of Tehran, and has given readers insight about Japan, where he has lived for many years. His TED Talks, including The Art of Stillness, have been viewed millions of times, and his latest book, Autumn Light, was just released in paperback. It is a work of nonfiction, reflecting on the impermanence of life and how joy and sorrow hit all of us unexpectedly and forcefully. Autumn Light is also an account of how ritual and routine can create calm and order. And as a longtime reader of Pico Ayer's work, Autumn Light feels like one of the more personal books. I'm delighted he is able to join Real Fiction. Joining me from Japan is Pico Ayer. Pico, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so very much, Laurie. I'm delighted to be talking to you.
1: Well, the opening pages of Autumn Light bring the reader into the moment when your father-in-law passed away suddenly. I think you were on a work trip in the U.S. when you received a call from your wife in Japan. But before we talk directly about that personal loss and and this new book, Autumn Light. Can you first share the story about your early career working for Time Magazine in New York and how you came to live in Japan?
0: Absolutely, Um, I was studying literature, more literature, more literature, eight years of my young life studying nothing but literature from the age of 17 to 25. And then I got um, rescued by Time Magazine and got a crash course in writing to the world instead of just writing and reading for myself. And my very first year at Time magazine, I had a business trip in Hong Kong and I was flying back and I had a layover at Narita Airport near Tokyo. Last thing I wanted, I just wanted to be back in New York City talking to my friends. But there I was stuck in this airport town and an airport hotel. And so I decided just to while away the time until check-in by walking around the little town of Narita. And it was a late autumn day, which means in Japan, it's this mix of brilliant blue skies, and the first pang of coming cold. And I found myself in this riddle of streets along lined with wooden houses, very intimate, unvisited. I came to a thousand year old temple and around the corner from the temple, I looked across this huge park where little kids in blue and pink hats, probably five years old were walking around collecting autumn leaves. And something in that moment made me think, I recognize this. Um, This place belongs to me. I belong to it. I have no official connection with Japan, but I recognize this moment and this feeling and this autumn sky more than I recognize the town where I grew up, Oxford, England, or the place where I'm living, New York City. And so by the time I boarded my flight three hours later, I decided on the basis of one morning in an airport town to move to Japan. And it took me three years to extricate myself from my job, but I did and I've been here in Japan 32 years. And I sometimes think about that story because I think everybody knows that she has a secret home. Just the way maybe you'll walk into a crowded party and you'll see a stranger and you feel I have unresolved business with that stranger. Somehow that stranger knows me better than my friends and family do. And I think we have the same relation with places. And I was just lucky enough to come upon the place that made sense to me in my mid-twenties and then um, to decide to make my life with it.
1: The full title of the book, Autumn Light, is actually Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells. And as you just described, autumn was the season that pulled you to Japan. And I've always been struck by the fact that you have addressed seasons and weather and even wind in your books. And in fact, when I was Preparing for this discussion I pulled one of your earlier books off the bookshelf The Lady and the Monk and inside I found a boarding pass that I had from when I took a trip to Japan so I traveled to Japan with this book and I looked at the page where I had the boarding pass and there was a paragraph about the fact that Japanese have colors assigned to wind and so as you were talking about autumn and it's it's kind of almost spiritual attraction, is there a kind of supernatural, um, I guess, a language imbued in the Japanese vocabulary? Because clearly, Autumn really spoke to you.
0: Well, I would say that the Japanese are much more sensitive to the seasons than I am or than I was when I lived in England or the US. There are 72 seasons in every year in Japan. In other words, the season changes every five days. Oh, And of course, in Japan, you know from having been here, um, the clothes, the food, everything changes in tune with the seasons. Just last night, it was a full moon here because I'm sitting in the apartment where autumn light is set. And even as uh, the prime minister was giving a message about sort of lockdown procedures and people were aware that the virus was coming closer most people's attention was on the full moon and on the reports about how this uh, April moon was a super moon, one of the strongest moons of the year. And I thought, well, this is one reason <laughs> I, I moved to Japan, to look at the moon rather than to listen to the latest tweet. Um, I really like and appreciate what you said about noticing that I, I write a lot about light and the seasons. And I think that's partly, as you know, um, the condition of being a writer. People sometimes think well, this guy's a travel writer, so he spends his life traveling. And of course, for every day traveling, I spend a month just sitting still at my desk. And I think sitting still at one's desk means that really the only event of the day is light and weather. The weather inside you and the awareness that it's constantly changing and who you were at seven in the morning is not who you'll be at 10 in the morning. And the light as it literally casts different angles and shadows across the room. So I think writer's Anyway, are preternaturally um, sensitive to that kind of thing because that, they're the companions we live with day in, day out at our desks. But you're right that in Japan, um, all of this has a special quality because they not only give colors to the winds, but different um, names for the different periods in the autumn and a special word for the twilight that comes and a special word, of course, for the autumn wind. And I've always felt that the seasons are really, in some ways, the religion uh, of Japan. And in autumn, all my neighbors uh, will flock out to watch the um, maple leaves. And I think they'll put on their Sunday best and they'll all go to the temple, gardens, and parks. And to me, it's a little the way people traditionally in the West would go to church. In other words, people are going out to observe the seasons. Literally so that they'll be joined in a congregation, so they'll be reminded of forces much larger than we are, um, so they'll be put in place in some ways. It's
1: one of the things that Autumn Light is also about. It's about the steadying powers of routine and ritual. And you were talking about, well, people flocking and, and working in kind of community with nature. And now we're being told to stay home. And we're in a different kind of really emotional universe. And I wonder, what are some basic things that you have learned in balancing your very hectic world travel schedule and then the quiet time that you spend in Japan? How, how might we all kind of navigate this world moment of insecurity?
0: I would say the only important part of my life is the quiet time. The hectic stuff is, is is just like the sort of sparkle on top of the waves. But the ocean in which I live is the time alone. And I think really all of us know it's only our inner resources that matter. Um, for example, my 88-year-old mother who's in California and whom I can't visit currently is in hospital at the moment. And I realize that... All the trips I've taken, all the books I've written, all the money I have in the back, none of that's going to help her or help me right now. The only thing that can sustain her and support me is what I've gathered within in terms of clarity and strength and resilience and and joy and what I can bring to her. And I think one of the reasons I moved from the U.S. to Japan was the sense to go back to the autumn leaves that In Japan, you often hear that life is about a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And every life is sorrowful insofar as every life dies. We all know sickness. Most of us know old age. We meet somebody, and then we have to separate from somebody. But that's not a reason for grief so much as for joy. And that's what the cherry blossoms flowering around me right now are all about. People cherish them in Japan precisely because they don't last. And they're a wake-up call about both mortality and the fact that the fact of mortality means we can't take anything for granted and we have to find our joy, our beauty, our wonder right now. Look around you. This is the moment to celebrate. This is the moment you can be sure of. And I think, again, a writer is paid, or at least these days encouraged, to spend much of her time alone. And so goes familiar with the fact that what happens to us is much less important than what we make of what happens to us. Um, many years ago, uh, I was in my family home in California. The whole house burnt down. I lost everything I own in the world, including really the next three books I was going to write. And 450 other houses were also devastated in that fire. And I noticed maybe a year later that... After that period of adjustment, quite a few of my neighbors were traumatized for life. But quite a few of my other neighbors suddenly thought, well, in some ways, this can be a liberation. I don't need to live with so much clutter in my life. Maybe I can live in the place that speaks to me instead of just the place where it happened to me. Uh, For myself as a writer, having only written nonfiction at that point and having been stripped of all my notes, but still being possessed by certain subjects and the wish to engage with them, I tried fiction, which perhaps I always would have been too shy or scared to try otherwise. In other words, this seeming disaster actually had all kinds of opportunities within it. And it was up to each individual how much she would see it as debilitating and how much she might see that there was a possibility hidden within it. And of course, in this current moment, all of us are thinking most about those who are sick, those who are homeless, those who don't have resources. But for the few of us who are fortunate enough maybe um, to be healthy at the end of this and to have a job to go back to and to have a roof over our heads, I think it's an opportunity Um, because I feel that I and many of my friends have been racing around so much in recent years that we have much more coming in on us than we have time and space. In other words, that something has been pushed out of control and that all-important balance between experience and reflection – has somehow um, been thrown out in recent years. We've got lots and lots of data, but we never know how to put it into perspective. And suddenly now, life has given us, I think, a kind of wake-up call and reminded us, this is the chance to cultivate your inner resources. This is the chance to find what really sustains you.
1: Well, actually, I found one of the most charming and instructive lessons in the book um, had to do with a reference to your wife and daughter, uh, both both of whom are described in the book as embodying the Japanese mindset. And really, however upsetting a situation is, there's really little point in negotiating with reality and this came when your daughter was quite ill as a teenager, and she didn't complain about the circumstances. So there, it seems to be a, a kind of Japanese trait of just acceptance and getting on with things. I wish we could learn that a bit better here. <laughs>
0: Beautifully put. And actually, that's really what I intuited even in my 20s, and that's the lesson I came in part to Japan to learn. So, yes, my, my daughter um, was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer when she was 13, and, of course, she cried for an hour, and, of course, she panicked and was scared. But, as you say, she thought, this is what I've been dealt with. Now I have to deal with it. Uh, and maybe how the outcome of this will partly be determined by what spirit I enter into this with. And, of course, her mother, who was sleeping with her in the hospital for the next 12 months, also um, had to, to come to terms with that. And now, many years later, when my daughter is very healthy and married and living down the street, I think both of them would say, as many of us say, and as I would say about the forest fire, that terrible diagnosis wasn't the worst thing in the world. It brought many huge challenges, but it also brought many things that made all of us much stronger and richer and closer than we would be otherwise. And um, you're right that I think that Japanese have, they don't have a formal religion as such, or they have a, an abundance of formal religions, but they do have this belief uh, in gods that inhere in everything around us, in every particle of dust and every blade of grass and every piece of dew. They call them kamisama, meaning household deities or, or local spirits. And so I think they're humble, and they realize that when we don't, we're not in control of our circumstances. And so when circumstances come along, like the terrible tsunami of nine years ago, they're not shocked, and and they think, well, the heavens are sending us a message. Now we have to work with this. We can't, uh, as you said, a fight with reality is a fight we're never going to win. And I was reminded that uh, I was talking to a friend in the U.S. a few days ago, and talking about things as we are. And he said, oh, well, you've known a lot of loss in your life. And I said, no, I think everybody has known a lot of loss in her or his life. And I'm only a victim of real life, as as are all of us. And I think the Japanese are almost born with that sense. And when the little children are encouraged to go out and see the cherry blossoms and look at the maple leaves, part of what they're being encouraged to do is remember that there's this whole big uh, planet and universe cycling around us, and uh, and we have to be in tune with it. We can't expect it to respond to our wishes.
1: Well, you know, one of the beautiful things that comes through in this book is the steadying power of routine and ritual. And there's something kind of specific I want to ask you about. It's it's about your very frequent trips to the post office. And as you describe it, the post office is very near your apartment. Maybe Actually, it's maybe just across the street. And I noticed that in reading the book, you do mail a lot of letters. And there was such a joyfulness in how you describe the woman who helps select the stamps for your postcards and letters. And it was important to her to find a stamp that's very beautiful so when the recipient Receives this letter they might remark or might appreciate the beauty in this little stamp, and that just struck me as being such a small moment of of beauty, something a little ritual that can leave a lasting impression.
0: Well, thank you for alighting on that moment and and um, because it 's really this speaks for the heart of the book and before I answer your question directly i'm as i 'm sitting here i 'm looking out over that post office you 're absolutely right it 's just across the street, maybe. 20 yards away. I visited the lady at the post office just yesterday. And it speaks for this sense that I didn't always feel when I was living in the U.S. But Japan, as you know from being here, has a very, very strong sense of community. Just across the street from where I'm sitting is our bus stop. And on the bus stop is a map of the neighborhood with every house listed and the name of everybody living in every house. And the post office is like community center. It's a way for everybody to be joined into something larger than themselves. So on the one hand, as you say, it's wonderful that every time I take the smallest uh, letter to the post office. Yesterday, I was sending a a check back to a construction company in California, but that kind lady I describe in the book um, made sure that she didn't frank the the envelope, but she put a stamp on it so that it would give a little bit of happiness to some stranger on the Mm. other side of the world next week. And she warned me, well, because of the coronavirus, it may take six days instead of five. Is that okay? (laughs) Um, uh, Old ladies will come in at Christmas and give presents to all the postal workers. There's a farmer's market set outside this post office, and it's a tiny community post office. I mean, it's got three, three little um, cash, cashier spaces, but it's very, very small. And yet so much of the neighborhood revolves around it. And when I spent 16 years um, trying to distill 32 years of experience into this very small book, I thought, what speaks for the essence of Japan? And I alighted on the post office. In terms of my own rituals, any writer is probably too much the creature of rituals. And I know you and I were talking a few minutes ago about how embarrassingly I go to sleep every night at eight o'clock. I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I usually spend my first five hours at my desk. I take two long walks around the neighborhood. I, uh, if My wife is in the next room, but if she was sitting next to me, she'd fall around laughing, wondering what crazy person she married who is so habit-bound. But in, I, do, I do still love sending letters. And I moved to Japan in order partly to slow down because i felt that the world was moving so fast and there was no way i could live at a pace determined by machines unless i were to become a machine myself and so i wanted to live in a more human scale life so as you know from reading the book so carefully here in our little rented two-room apartment um, we don't have a car we don't have a bicycle i've never used a cell phone in my life we don't really have any media and one result of that is that the whole day lasts a 1,000 hours. I have time for five hours of um, writing and several walks and a trip to the health club and one hour of reading on my terrace, and then still maybe five hours left to do exciting things with my wife. Um, and I never had that feeling when I was racing from place to place in New York City or, or California. So I suppose I moved to Japan, so that I could live a life that seemed more in tune with what I thought was sensible, but also, as you said, to learn from a culture that steadies itself with rituals. And although it's 7.20 in the morning now, my wife has already woken up. She's already heated up um, tea for her father, who died six years ago. She's already waved incense all around the room and placed her father's favorite snack on the household altar. Although, um, as I say, her father died six years ago. And whether this has meaning or not, I think it steadies people.
1: Well, you've written about Japan with such sensitivity and specificity. How are you viewed in your little village and in the country
0: as a whole? In some ways, <laughs> with terror, which, which you would laugh at if you saw me, because I'm an extremely small, kind of mild-mannered, unthreatening person. But, um, as you know from being here, Jap- Japan is quite a homogeneous society. Very few people with dark skin that I have, and as I have. And so people often don't really know what to do with me. Um, <laughs> my, my nickname in the neighborhood is Isuro which means parasite, because um, I'm the only male in the neighborhood who doesn't wake up at <laughs> 5 in the morning, put on a suit, and go and stand at the bus stop to go off to the office. Even worse, for most of our years here, yeah, I'd send my wife off to her job while I was lounging around at my desk in my pajamas. And you know, anyone looking at a writer thinks this guy is a bum. This guy is doing nothing for a living except lounging around. Um, they used to strip search me every time I came back into Japan. Um, because they just assumed either I was a terrorist or I was Saddam Hussein's cousin or I was an Iranian trying to uh, immigrate illegally because they had a great problem with that in the 1990s. Uh, and then when I show them a British or an American passport, they'd be even more suspicious. As soon as I got through customs, of course, everyone in Japan couldn't be kinder and more polite to everybody. Um, and I feel really spoiled here. But I think officially the Japanese are a little unsettled by having a foreigner in the neighborhood. And for that reason, I've been here 32 years on a tourist visa to keep myself honest, to remind myself I'll never be Japanese, I'll never really be a full-time part member of this community, and also really to reassure my neighbors um, that uh, don't worry, I'm a visitor here, I don't have designs on you, I'm not trying to get closer than you would like. Um, I will keep to my space and I know um, you will keep to yours. Uh, the lines are very strictly defined in Japan between who's within and who's without. And I don't want anyone to forget that I'm an outsider.
1: You have managed to uh, fit in quite nicely in with your own routine and communal connections. Uh, This is a very difficult question to ask, because I know some writers do not like to discuss this. Do you know or have a feeling for what you will work on next. I confess I did not realize that you spent 16 books, 16 years on this book. Do you have another book in mind or what's competing for your attention right now?
0: Well, a part of me feels guilty uh, about this because, um, because of the virus conditions right now, I've actually extended my stay in Japan. And so actually I've had the rare luxury of weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months to write. So I've, I think I've almost completed my next two books, which I wasn't expecting to have done by now. Um, one is a book about two places that have always possessed me for their spiritual intensity, Jerusalem and Inner Australia, by which I mean um, the Red Desert, the red center of Australia. And they both exert a real charisma. But of course, we never know what exactly to do with charisma. And I'm fascinated at looking at both of them. So I'm, I've written two thirds of that book. And then I have another book about I suppose you could say the humanity behind the headlines. And one of the things I've always felt as a journalist is that in the age of information, we often know less about the rest of the world than ever before. And sometimes we know least of all about the countries we hear most about, such as North Korea and Iran and Cuba and Yemen and Kashmir. So I've spent a lot of my life, when I do travel, those are the places I go to. And so I have a set of essays about what I found on the ground in the flesh, in North Korea, Iran, Cuba, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, other war zones, I suppose um, you would say. Uh, and it's just a way to remind ourselves and remind myself that the world is never as simple as our ideas of it, and it's never um, as unambiguous as it seems from afar. Of course, writing Autumn Light, I was facing this rather daunting problem, which is how do you compress half a lifetime, 32 years of experiences and emotions and encounters into a book that will make sense to a reader who's perhaps never been to Japan? And so I decided, as you saw, just to alight on a single season when, after my father-in-law's death and on a single neighborhood and even on that single post office you mentioned. And I thought by making it as focused as I could, I could try to capture a whole culture, and 32 years just through a visit to the post office as the maple leaves fall all around it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I do look forward to what is coming next from you, but this gives us a little time to appreciate Autumn Light. And I'll just remind listeners that I've been speaking with Pico Iyer. The new book is Autumn Light. It just was released in paperback. It's Um, full of wisdom and joy it's funny it's uh, sober it's it's just everything that we need right now in this very difficult time and pico i can't thank you enough for joining the program it's been a wonderful honor to speak with you today
0: thank you very much laurie i feel really delighted to be engaging in this conversation and to be on the show and thank you so much for reading the book so carefully and for just supporting the cause of books we we need readers and uh readers as attentive as you so thank you
1: you've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. An extended version of this episode will be available at realfictionradio.com and all your favorite podcast platforms. A special thank you to Sarah Nisbet at Penguin Random House for helping coordinate this conversation. Thank you for listening.